turn in the word of the Lord with me, if you would, to the gospel of Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, I'm just going to read a single verse in your hearing this morning, and then uh, I want to minister what I believe the Lord's given to me for us today. As you're turning to Mark chapter 12, I want to say what a joy it is to see each and every one of you. I was able to greet many of you, and uh, it's not a not by a definition of a beautiful day outside, but it's a great day to be in the house of the Lord. And it is good to see each and every one of you, and we are glad that you are here. You may feel like you, uh, like you slipped in under the radar, but God knows that you're here. It's, amen? Mark chapter 12, verse 28 in the New King James Version says this, Then one of the scribes came... And having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that Jesus had answered them well, asked Jesus, which is the first commandment of all? Which is the first commandment of all? You may be seated. I want to minister from that passage in the verses that follow about the greatest way to live. The greatest way to live. Has anybody here today ever built a ramp for their bike when you were a kid? Anyone ever construct a homemade ramp for your bike? Okay. Everyone remembers anybody ever suffer an injury due to a faulty ramp? Yeah. Did anyone discover in that moment that you were not an engineer or a designer? Okay. I've got some that are that are peering far into the distant history, but I've got some that have lived it out. I I see Jordan back there lifting his hand like it was last week, okay? Some things never change. I remember I've built my share of them, and, and, and we could probably share stories and have a really good laugh, bicycles and ramps and tricks and different things that we tried to pull off that didn't go the way we thought it was going to. There was a day... In 1974, the day was September 8th, the place was the Snake River Canyon. There was a crowd that had gathered at the Snake River Canyon on September 8th, 1974, for what promised to be an entertaining, if not historic, afternoon. On some day, a time before this, there was a man that had been in an airplane, and he'd looked out the window of that airplane, and he'd seen the Snake River Canyon below, and he had... uh, started to devise an event that he was going to put on. And he leased a few hundred acres in the area, and he started assembling the equipment that he would need. His name was Robert Craig Knievel. Evil Knievel. And he was going to attempt to jump the mile-wide Snake River Canyon with a rocket-powered bike. Now, what 10-year-old kid wouldn't like to build a ramp and have a rocket-powered bike and try to jump it over a mile-long canyon. Now, there's no suspense here. This happened almost 50 years ago. Although he had made many other jumps of this type, Mr. Knievel did not complete this jump. He came up short because of a, some kind of malfunction, and he had to pull his parachute, and he survived with only a broken nose. But today, if you go to the place in Twin Falls, Idaho, you're going to see a monument that marks the place and the location and the occasion of everything that happened that day. And although there is a monument sitting there, it only marks an attempt that wasn't far from making it, but didn't quite make it. I want to minister this morning from Mark chapter 12 
about some of the actual teaching that Jesus had when this scribe asked him this question. And then I want to minister for a little while about what it means to enter and be a part of the kingdom of God. There was a scribe that came and seen that Jesus had been doing a really good job, an outstanding job fielding questions one day in Jerusalem. And people were coming at him from all different angles. And they were, Brother Riley, they were asking him the toughest questions that they could ask him. They were trying to trip him up and trap him and get him to say something that would indict him so that they could do away with him. But Jesus was dispensing of all of them and was doing a terrific job of answering any question that came his way. And there was a young scribe that saw all of this happening and thought, this is my moment. This is the moment I'm going to approach Jesus because I have a question. I think this scribe that approached him in verse 28 was a thinking man. I think he had an honest question. I don't think he was among those that was trying to trap or trick Jesus. I think he had a question that he sincerely wanted an answer to. And he asked Jesus a challenging question. I think a sincere question. He said, what is the first commandment of all? And when he's talking about the commandments, you might not know, so I want to tell you, when he's speaking about the commandments, they lived by a set of commandments that are contained in the first part of the Bible that we call the Old Testament. And in that section of the Bible, there are 613 commandments, 613, that they lived by. There's 248 of them that are positive, and there's 365 of them that are prohibitions. 613 total. And this man approaches Jesus and says, what commandment of all of those stands above the rest? Which part of the law really captures the essence of the whole? We love asking these kind of questions, don't we? We still ask these kind of questions. We ask, what's the best car that's ever been built? And I'm not a car person, but there's some car people here. And if we got you at a table, you could go back and forth and have an entire afternoon discussing the merits, the pros and the cons of all the different cars. And you could try to figure out which one's the one that's the best that's ever been built. We might ask, who is the best pure hitter in the history of baseball? Is it Ted Williams? Is it Babe Ruth? Is it Tony Gwynn? Is it Barry Bonds? Is it Albert Pujols? Is it Hank Aaron? Is it Willie Mays? Ah, see? Now, we could do that. And ladies, I don't know about you, but us guys, if you give us a question like that, we can huddle up and make an entire day of it, maybe a weekend of it. There might be chalkboards involved. And there might be ranking systems involved. We can do it, Brother Brian. Now, I don't know if the ladies function that way, but I know that I've sat at many a tables and in many rooms where we, someone poses a question in the same vein as what this scribe posed to Jesus, and we can go for hours. You just pick the topic. We love asking these kind of questions, and we love it whenever somebody feels like they can launch out and give an authoritative answer because it gives us something to argue with. This young scribe asked a question, and there's many rabbis and leaders 
over the course of history that had commented on the commandments and had answered questions similar to this one's. But as far as we can tell in history, Jesus' answer to that question is fresh and it's complete and it's different than any other answer that had ever been given to this particular question. Verse 29 of Mark chapter 12 just says that Jesus answered him and said, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Jesus pulled from that part of the scriptures, the Old Testament, where all of these laws are, and he pulled these two commandments, and he kind of just melded them together in that moment and gave the most profound and complete answer to that question that had ever been offered. The first part of it wasn't necessarily something they hadn't heard before. It came from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4 that says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. God was saying, you're going to love me with every part of who you are. That's the kind of relationship that God wants to have with you. He wants all of you for your whole life. He wants your mind. He wants your body. He wants your emotions. He wants your strength. He wants everything about you. And in in referencing that commandment, Jesus is affirming that day and saying, God wants a love and a relationship with you that encompasses the entire person. It's not enough to stake out a little part of our life and give it to God. It's not enough to stake out a little bit of time and give that to God, but God demands all of it. In essence, what Jesus is saying and what the Lord was saying in Deuteronomy is that we have to love God and not just the idea of God. Do you know that there's a difference between loving God and loving the idea of God? You know it's different between being a person of God and liking the idea of being a person of God? There's a difference, and Jesus is drilling down to the very core of what their religion was back then, and he's saying, the requirements are still the same. I know I'm breaking new ground. I know I'm teaching things. I know there's new revelation that's going out every time I teach, and every time I touch somebody, every town I go to, I know there's a new thing that's happening, but the requirement still remains the same. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And Jesus wanted us to know that this may be the most, certainly the most important thing that we have was going to be forsaken in the last days. It's why Jesus said in Matthew 24, he says, because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. I stand here before you this morning. Some of you have lived for the Lord longer than I've been alive, but I stand before you today and I say that the times that we live in are challenging the things that we love and the things that we give our most to. 
And we must be on guard, brothers and sisters, that our love for God remains as strong as it has ever been in our life. That in these last days, our love for God and the things of God doesn't grow cold. We love him to the degree that we know him. We can't love him when we don't know him. That's why Paul wrote and, he, Paul wrote and said, I have to know him. I have to know him. God can't be known as an indirect object. God has to be known personally. And when you know him, then you can love him. But if you don't know him, you can't possibly love him the way that we're supposed to. Jesus says the second is like unto it, branches off from it. And he quotes from Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18. He says, you shall not take vengeance or bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus' double answer that day to the man's question showed that love for God and love for people can't be divided into separate categories. That if we love God, we will love our neighbor. And if we do not love our neighbor, we do not truly love God. I know. I know we didn't get the, the second half of that doesn't get the stronger amen because loving our neighbor is tough. When we get a revelation of everything God did for us, when we get a revelation of the cross and the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, Sister April, it's difficult to not just explode with love for God when you recognize and gain a revelation of everything he did for me. But when we start talking about loving our neighbor who hadn't done nothing for me, maybe they've even been working against me. There aren't near as many amens in the room. But the word of God is clear, and Jesus gave this answer to the scribe so that we could have it in our hearing today, that the second is like unto it. We must love our neighbor as ourself. And it's that teaching, that moment of Jesus, that's the teaching. It permeated the, the early church. It got a hold of them in a way that caused them to recognize this truly is the greatest way to live. Is it the easiest way to live? No, but it is the greatest way to live. It is the greatest commandment. This is what the Lord requires of us. And it got a hold of everybody that was a part of the church in the first century. And in every writing that came after that, all of the letters of the New Testament that the apostles would write to the churches that were around the world, this is the theme that comes out in every single letter. The Apostle John wrote in 1 John chapter 4. He says, if somebody says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. The Apostle Paul would write in Romans and he would say, Oh, no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Galatians, he wrote, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love. Served in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
James would write. I'm talking about the different voices. I've I've told you what John said. And I've told you what Paul said. Let me tell you what James said. This isn't isolated to just one person's personality or style of ministry. This is the teaching that took over the early church and the people of God. And drove them to turn the world upside down. The apostle James wrote. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture. Which is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. There wasn't a single person or personality in the first generation of the church who missed this core truth. Everybody knew how true this was and how pivotal it was to the way that God, when you were filled with the gift of the Spirit, the work that God would do in your life as a work of the Holy Ghost, it would cause you to love God with everything that you had and hold nothing back. And that there would be a natural overflow that would flow into the life of everybody that you came into contact with. Because God said to love your neighbor as yourself. Loving others depends upon our loving God. And we cannot separate the two. We can't. Here's what we got to be careful about. We're all prone to the same type of thing because we're made out of the same stuff. And there was a man in scripture that approached Jesus when he heard Jesus teaching about this kind of a topic. Jesus was telling them and expounding on how important it was to live this way. This was the greatest way to live. And you've got to love God and you have to love your neighbor. And there was a man that did what we'll do sometimes, even though we may not say the words. He said, Lord, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Somebody's asking about neighbors. Jesus doesn't like that question. Who is my neighbor? When we ask that question, and we do sometimes, it's coming from the place of, are you serious, God? Come on. For real? It's not coming from a place of really wanting to understand exactly what Jesus said. It's coming from a place of we really do understand and we really don't want to do it. This person comes to Jesus and asks, who is my neighbor? Jesus doesn't even answer the question directly. He tells a story. He tells the story of the Good Samaritan. I'm not going to tell the whole story this morning. But you can look up the story of the Good Samaritan and you can see exactly how Jesus responded to that kind of a spirit. What he does is he tells a parable that changes the question. He tells a parable that drives at the heart. Mark chapter 12 verse 32 says, The scribe said to Jesus, Well said, teacher. You have spoken the truth, for there is one God and there is no other but he. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength. And to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. Here is one of those rare occasions where Jesus has somebody come and ask a question of him. And Jesus gives them an answer, maybe the answer they weren't expecting. And the person, instead of just clamming up and storming off and walking away or mumbling and grumbling, instead this person says, 
you've, you've hit the nail on the head, Jesus. That's an outstanding answer. I believe you've, you've, you've struck oil. That's exactly what the word of God is all about. That's exactly what life is all about. That is the greatest way that a person could possibly ever live their life. The scribe was in complete and total agreement with what Jesus had said. But agreement is not obedience. The scribe had what we would probably call a positive encounter. He gave a positive response to what, he heard what Jesus had to say. He said, Jesus said, this is the way to live your life. And the man said, I agree. But agreement is not the same thing as obedience. He gave a positive response to what Jesus had to say. He agreed with the message that was being taught and preached that day. But positive response is not salvation. How do we obey this commandment of Jesus? How do we live in order that we might be saved? Because when we hear Jesus say those two words, love your neighbor as yourself, what we're doing is we're recognizing a standard that is so high that there's no way I can possibly reach it on my own. I love that commandment, that ideal that Jesus sets the bar way up here, maybe way up here. I love that Jesus speaks to that potential that we have for love if we'll attach ourselves to a relationship with him. But I'm here to tell you, there's some parts of my flesh that I still have to keep in check. And that might keep me on a daily basis every day from reaching that high standard. I just can't hit the mark every day the way Jesus says I need to. How do I obey the commandment of Jesus and leave the place of just mere agreement and get into a place where I can live for God and be saved and make heaven? How do I do it? I'm here to tell you today. That the answer is tied up in Jesus' final words to that scribe in Mark chapter 12. Verse 34 says, when Jesus saw that the scribe answers wisely. The scribe was in total agreement. And when Jesus saw that here was a guy who gave an honest question and had some honest uh, things that he was wondering about. And then Jesus gave him the answer and the man agreed with him. Jesus saw that he answered wisely and Jesus said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Jesus saw that the scribe understood that the law was not all about burnt offerings and sacrifices, that the law wasn't about having the system of living for God down to just a mechanical operation of just checking the boxes and doing the things and punching the time clock and doing everything that a religious person does. He saw that he was dealing with a person who understood that it was more than those things. And he complimented him. And he said, son, you are not far. From the kingdom of God. Now some people are very far from the kingdom of God. And there's others that are at the very threshold. And here's a scribe. A man who's very close. And I'm here to tell you this morning. That it was both a compliment. And a warning. It's possible to be within an inch. Of the kingdom of God. 
but not in the kingdom of God. Even though he was close, he was still separated. It's possible to be within an inch of heaven and still go to hell. Ask the guy on the rocket motorcycle. Can you be close, but still not make it? Yes. Making it halfway or even one inch short is still not making it. I don't want to be content to be not far from the kingdom. I want to be in the kingdom. And those who enter the kingdom of God, hear me this morning, are those who are willing to pause and really think about eternal things. The greatest way to live is loving God and loving your neighbor. But if I could say it even more concisely, the greatest way to live is in exactly the last thing that Jesus told this man. The greatest way to live is to live in the kingdom of God. How do you enter the kingdom of God and be a part of it? I'm glad you asked. Because there were some other people in the New Testament that asked Jesus questions. And that's why we need the entire scriptures to answer questions about salvation and the things of God. We can't just take one section and forget all the rest. And when we look at this interaction where Jesus talks to this scribe and, and ends the conversation by telling him, you aren't far from the kingdom of God, it leaves me hanging. How do I get in? How do I get in? How do I become a part of the kingdom of God? The word of God tells us. There's another interaction that I want to point your attention to today, and it's in John chapter 3. There's a man that comes to Jesus the same way this scribe did, and he had an honest question. He wasn't looking to trap Jesus. He had an honest question for Jesus. It was a man named Nicodemus, and Nicodemus was a, of the Pharisees. He was one of the most learned, educated, influential people in the city. Nicodemus came to Jesus by night and asked Jesus in John chapter 3, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God and that no one can do the things that you do unless God sends, sends him, unless God's with him. And Jesus answered and said to Nicodemus, Most assuredly, I say to you, Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? And be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, Nicodemus, unless one is born of the water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. The same apostles that grabbed a hold of this truth that Jesus told. And they, they grabbed a hold. I read their accounts to you. They said, we have to love God with everything that we are. We need to love our neighbor as ourselves. That same generation of the church, those same leaders that got a hold of that truth and said, this is the greatest way to live. And they wrote about it for decades to come to the churches. They also understood how to live that way. Not just that they needed to, but how to actually do it. How do I become a part of the kingdom of God? They wrote, and they wrote about a new birth experience. And they directed those that had been born again of the water and of the Spirit to live in the power of the Holy Ghost. 
And that if they would live and walk in the power of God's Spirit, then the greatest way to live would be theirs to lay hold upon. They would find themselves able to love God without reservation and to give everything they had to God and to love others in a way that they never dreamed possible. Even those that were reviling them and persecuting them and that hated them, they would be able to love their neighbors even as they loved themselves. They assumed when they wrote those New Testament letters, they were writing to communities of people, to churches that had already experienced what Jesus told Nicodemus about. When Jesus told Nicodemus, you need to be born again of the water and of the spirit. What does that mean? It means that we need to be baptized in the water. When we're baptized in the water and we're baptized in the name of Jesus, our sins are washed away. And the blood of Jesus that he shed at Calvary, everything he did at the cross, is now attached to our life. That sacrifice becomes applied to my life when I'm baptized in the name of the man who hung on the cross and gave his life for me. It's a powerful moment. You can't skip over it if you want to be a part of the kingdom. Jesus said you have to have that experience and you have to be filled with the Spirit. You have to be born again of the water and of the Spirit. What does it mean to be born again of the Spirit, Brother Dustin? It means that you need to be filled with the gift of God's Spirit. It's a promise and it's a gift. And it's for everybody. It's not just for a select group of people. It's not just for those that have been serving the Lord for 20 years. It's for everybody who wants to be filled with this Spirit. It is the gift of God. And in the New Testament, in this age that we live in, it's for everybody. He's poured out his spirit on all flesh. Every generation. Every group of people. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how young you are. It doesn't matter what color you are. It doesn't matter what your bank account looks like. It doesn't matter what your credit score is. It doesn't matter how behind you are on things or how educated you are. The Holy Ghost is for you. And you can be born again of the water and of the spirit. And the word of God, not me, but the word of God says that if we will be born again of the water and of the spirit, that we can enter the kingdom of God. Now, if you, would, if you want more information about that, I want to pause for a second because that's a lot. If you want more information about that, I would love nothing more than to sit down and talk about that some more. I could talk about that for a lot longer this morning, but I respect your time. And if you need more information about what I just talked about, I would love to have a Bible study. I'd love to have a soda or a coffee or whatever you want and us talk about that because I believe it's the most important message in the Bible for us today. Because I refuse to be content with just being close to the kingdom. I want to be in the kingdom. And I think there's someone here today that there's something starting to turn on in your spirit and you're starting to gain a revelation. You know what? Maybe I'm close to the kingdom, but maybe I'm not in the kingdom. Maybe I need to look at the word of God and see what does God's word say about getting in his kingdom. And if you're going to be in the kingdom and if you'll be filled with the gift of God's spirit and then you'll live and walk in this power of God's spirit you can live the way that Jesus taught when he told that scribe you need to love God and love your neighbors it's the only way to live 
the greatest way there is to live. It's the only way to do it, is to make sure that you're in the kingdom, living in the power of the Holy Ghost. The musicians would come. Someone is on the edge today because the word is revealing to you that maybe there's more to your salvation and your experience and your walk with God than you've had so far. In Acts chapter 26, the Apostle Paul was talking to a man named Agrippa. He presented the gospel to Agrippa. He said, Agrippa, there was this man named Jesus. He became the savior of the whole world. He was perfect. He was God manifest in the flesh. They crucified him. They killed him on a cross. But he came up the third day. And through the work that Jesus did, his death, burial, and resurrection, we're able to step into a new kind of relationship with God that's different than anything that's ever been available. Because the grace of God flows freely and covers all sin. And we can be born again of the water and of the spirit. And we can live an overcoming life. We don't have to be bound by sin anymore. We don't have to be what people have told us that we have to be. We don't have to be what our family tree says we have to be. But we can be a new creature. Paul said it probably pretty close to that way to Agrippa. And Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. Can I tell you this morning that there's times when a single step makes all the difference? Anybody ever flown on an airplane? Anybody ever been to the airport flown on an airplane? There's this little tunnel thing you go through when you're getting when you're boarding on the airplane. You got to walk through this little tunnel and then you actually come up to the the hull of the airplane and they've got the door open and and it's kind of vacuum sealed in and you kind of got to walk into the plane. And you can stand at the edge of that tunnel and if you'll make one more step into that plane that plane will take you wherever it's going but if you stay stationary and stay right where you are in that little tunnel that plane's going to take off and you're going to stay right where you are all because of one step Sometimes a single step makes all the difference. I've ministered this morning about the actual teachings of Jesus. What a standard he set for us. I want to reach for it. I want to live the greatest way that's ever been presented. I want to love God with everything I have. I want to love other people with everything that I have. But I'm here to tell you today, the only way we can do it is by making sure that we're better off than that scribe was. He wasn't far from the kingdom. We need to make sure we're in the kingdom. Stand with me all over this room. Right now, I'm telling you in the Holy Ghost, you are at the same point as that scribe. You're at the same point of that as that scribe was at. You're at the point of a positive encounter. That scribe had a positive encounter with Jesus. But a positive encounter 
is not salvation. A positive encounter is not the same thing as being a part of the kingdom. A positive response today, even though I would commend it, a positive response today is not the same thing as being led by the power of the Spirit and being obedient to God in loving others. I don't want my life to be an attempt at being part of the kingdom. I told you, there's that spot in Twin Falls, Idaho where they have that monument set up of what happened on that day in September of 1974. But it's, an, it's a monument to an attempt. I don't want my life to be a monument to an attempt. I want to go all the way. I'm making two calls this morning. I think it's going to be appropriate that we all find a way to one of these altars and that we all step out of where we are in just a moment. But there's two calls I feel in the Holy Ghost to make in particular just to give us some clear direction today. The first is you need the message of Calvary and the message of the cross, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You need it to be applied to your life with a new birth experience. You need to repent of your sins. You need to be baptized in the name of Jesus so that your sins can be completely washed away. And you need to be filled with the Spirit of God. The second call I want to make is, if that's an experience you've already had, then what you need and what I need is a revival of being led by the power of the Holy Ghost. Being led by the power of the Holy Ghost. Let's lift up our hands in the house of the Lord right now. Let's begin to create an atmosphere of prayer and response. In the next 15 seconds, can we gather up around this sanctuary's front right now? Can we start to step out of where we are and be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Ghost? Can we take 10 or 15 seconds right now and just say, I'm not going to let the adversary speak a lie over my life. I'm not going to let myself convince myself that this isn't something for me today, that that was just an accident, that I'm not quite ready. I'm not going to let myself have the time to talk myself out of it this morning, but I'm going to take a step. Would somebody, would somebody take somebody by the hand, take a friend by the hand, take somebody that you're here with and say, let's go, let's go. There's a life that's waiting for us. It's the greatest life that we could ever possibly live. Come on, don't let it be, don't let your life be defined by an attempt. Don't let your life be a monument to something that God attempted to do. That he sent a preacher on a Sunday morning in February to preach a word to your life and to call you out of the place that you're at and say, why don't you come a little bit higher? Why don't you take a step into what God has for you? Come on, don't let that be the final word. Don't let that be the final chapter.